welcome to Sagittarius Eye, issue 35, April 3307, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Sagittarius Eye. Editorial. This month we relaunch our printed edition amidst turbulent times. Last month we considered the trouble the Empire was having in scoring victories over the Neo-Marlinist Liberation Army, but it isn't just the Empire that's catching the heat. The Neo-Marlinists have decided that the Federation and Alliance are both complicit and, for reasons we can only speculate about at this time, have also decided to bomb our friends at Lave Radio. To add to the Federation's troubles, it faces a continuing scandal over the destruction of Starship One, rumoured links to President Hudson and the criminal conviction of Fleet Admiral Vincent, not to mention the recent actions of Jupiter Rochester, who is deeply involved in these sordid affairs. As we go to print, Pilots Federation members should be testing out not just their new spacesuits, but the ability to enter thin atmospheres, the latter increasing the number of planets we can explore by around 20%. In the past, we've covered the feats that we can achieve with our ships and the humble SRV Scarab. We wait with excitement to see what we can do with our new spacesuits, not to mention the breathtaking vistas we're likely to see as we land on entirely new categories of planets. One thing we're sure of, the racing community is going to come up with something. The spacesuits, after all, include a jetpack. Four years on. A history of the Thargoid conflict and the AXI. The Thargoids are the greatest menace we as a species face, and the toughest challenge of a pilot's skill. The anti-Xeno initiative, known as the AXI, has emerged as the Pilots' Federation's most effective and coordinated response to them. This month, we recap the origins of the conflict, and the emergence of this seasoned group of Xeno Slayers. Sweaty palms, heavy breathing, aching wrists, racing eyes, pounding heart. A synthetic voice, frameshift anomaly detected. Ship sensors experience momentary confusion, unable to resolve to anything more than unknown. But you know. Through the canopy, something cold stares back at you, seemingly devoid of emotion, utterly foreign. Corrosive green blood flows through its veins, fueling an unparalleled regenerative ability. Advanced technology that can, and in fact just has, yanked an unsuspecting commander out of hyperspace. Blood rushes in your ears, thumping between your temples. Your hands move on their own, the ship responding instantly as ordered. A blue beam shoots past the canopy. Something beeps. The shot connects. The pedals flash red and a deep, guttural roar is relayed through the cockpit speakers. A lot of things could happen in the next few moments, but only one outcome is certain. Death. Conflict with Thargoids began generations ago in the mid-29th century, as the human race was stretched far beyond its native solar system using early, faster-than-light technology. To this day, there's a debate on which party initiated conflict, but ultimately, it doesn't matter. In 2851, the Galactic Navy was mobilized in response to an extraterrestrial invasion. From the component of a captured Thargoid vessel, Quirium fuel was produced. A drastic leap forward in human engineering. However, it came at no small cost. Centuries of small-scale conflict between both species passed. In the 32nd century, the Galkop navy drew battle lines, but Thargoid reconnaissance continued to find ways to penetrate human territory. Fifty years later, as the alien force encroached on the Empire and Federation's horizons, all three parties agreed to share technology to combat this threat, creating the Intergalactic Naval Reserve Arm, or ENRA. By the end of the century, the Thargoid threat was believed to be eliminated as the invaders retreated, possibly as a result of the bioweapon, the mycoid virus, created by the INRA. Interspecies conflict, for now at least, was at an end. Many years of political dissolution and strife ensued. Whole systems rose and fell as mankind's alliances dissolved and reformed and fought amongst themselves over ideals 
resources and technology. In 3302, the famous unknown artifacts were discovered. Some found orbiting ammonia worlds. Speculation ran wild. Was it experimental human technology or the property of a foe long since forgotten? Barnacles began to appear in the Pleiades nebula, inciting further debate. They are known to see planets with barnacles that grow over countless years. Barnacles extract minerals from the planets they land on and produce meta-alloys which are essential in the construction and growth of their technology. On January 5, 3303, Commander D.P. Sayer of the Pilots' Federation reported an encounter with a ship of unknown design. He described being pulled out of hyperspace and rendered immobile while his vessel was scanned. Once the mysterious entity departed, his sensors came back online. There was only one conclusion. The Thargoid threat loomed over humanity once more. Reports of attacks on fleets and convoys in the Pleiades demanded a response. Remains of a civilization dating back before the birth of humanity were discovered and analyzed in haste. And experimental anti-Xeno weaponry and defense systems were developed. Some theorized that this technologically advanced race, named the Guardians, nevertheless fell victim to the biomechanical Thargoids. The Second Thargoid War had begun. Later in 3303, as Aegis developed the AX technology in response to the overwhelming threat, a new variant of the Thargoid interceptor was deployed. Fighting in wings became even more crucial as the new Medusa proved near impossible to defeat without support. On the 15th of November that same year, the Anti-Xeno Initiative was forged. Founded by Commander Gluttony Fang, their only objective was to push back the Thargoid threat. Over the next year, more variants of the Thargoid Interceptor would be discovered, each more deadly than the last. Despite being allied with Canon Research for cooperative intelligence gathering and analysis efforts, the AXI initially struggled, as skilled pilots were scarce, especially those with access to and experience with Guardian-Human hybrid technology. In 3304, as the aliens began to encroach on the core systems, Aegis established the Eagle Eye Surveillance Initiative an array of installations designed to sift through intercepted Thargoid transmissions and determine probable targets. Human pilots grew in numbers, strength and skill. With experienced analysts working around the clock, weaknesses were discovered and tactics devised and deployed against the insectoid aliens. Combat methods such as cold orbiting proved vital to success and remain in use today. I think that the fighting technique we call cold orbiting is knowledge everyone wished they had known sooner. It has been very beneficial to new pilots joining the front lines and may have even saved lives had it been devised earlier. Commander Byrne performed a number of tests with a number of ships, assessing and rating the anti-Xeno ability, commonly employing the cold orbit strategy. She ultimately determined that two of the best ships for fighting Thargoid interceptors were the Alliance Chieftain and Crate Mark II, and both have become a common choice for new pilots and veteran aces alike. Both medium ships, they offered an excellent balance between speed and maneuverability, crucial to cold orbiting. With just moderate engineering, they proved capable of holding their own against the aliens with or without shields. The key to destroying a Thargoid vessel, pilots realized, was to destroy the heart. Depending on the variant, interceptors have four to eight hearts, and each must be destroyed to prevent full hull regeneration. In 3303, Sirius Corporation began terraforming Ammonia Worlds in the Colsec Nebula, despite the reservations of many. On New Year's Eve 3306, the Thargoids retaliated with a series of coordinated, simultaneous attacks on colonies in the Colsec Nebula and Witchhead Nebula. As an insectoid species, theorized to be organized into colonies similar to ants, Thargoids have proven extremely territorial. 
This coordinated effort took system defense forces and even experienced AXI pilots by surprise. Commander Darth Vader, director of the AXI, told us. This was the third wave of Thargoid attacks into human space with 9 systems under siege, 3 in the Colsac sector and 6 in the Witchhead Nebula. The main fleet which I was part of was focused on the Colsac Nebula. We cleared the incursion within a week. It took us just 2 more to restore order in most of the Witchhead Nebula apart from Shenv which was quickly established as a beachhead for incoming reinforcements. Your correspondent flew with the AXI as they scrambled in response. At the front lines pilots in conflict zone exhibited incredible coordination. Almost comparable to a miniature hive mind of their own. Moving in synchrony threats were quickly felled. Scouts destroyed in seconds. Basilisks in minutes. A medusa in half an hour. And a hydra within just 2 hours. These are remarkable feats and demonstrate how adaptable humanity has proven in recent years. This quick turnaround was dearly bought. Many pilots were lost. System defences were greatly reduced. And stations are still in repair at the time of writing. Some have drawn a parallel between Thargoid scouts and interceptors and our own drones and ship launched fighters. Believing these vessels can be deployed from within Thargoid motherships. Despite continuing research by many groups, there are many uncertainties regarding the true capabilities of the enemy. And a mothership has not yet been found. I doubt the highest militant force the Thargoids possess is merely a hydrant variant interceptor. Thus it is our responsibility to prepare for what is to come when the Thargoids truly confront us with the full extent of their military might. We no longer have the luxury to consider forgiveness for unethical conducts from the Thargoids after the likes of the Mycoid virus. The fact that they have not released a weapon of equivalent or greater destruction upon us in retaliation is already a miracle. The AXI believe that barrage of incursions were nevertheless much more potent than anything seen before, showing that the Thargoids were developing at least as fast as we were. The AXI believes that further conflicts seem inevitable. Like a nuclear explosion, only the flashpoint of the Thargoid war has passed. The true devastation has yet to begin. Gluttony Fang, leader and founder of the AXI, told us. We need to stand ready, since I believe we have passed the window for dialogue. Whether or not we collectively made the decision to unleash weapons of mass destruction upon them, we all have to live with the consequences of our history and what comes after it. The leaders of the Anti-Xeno Initiative warn pilots not to become complacent. The only way we'll survive is if we stand together, united as a single human race. Even Colonia is not a safe distance from Thargoid wormhole technology, they warn. What's next? The Thargoids have proven themselves an adaptable enemy with, it seems, a long memory. We have been lulled into complacency as a species before. While the bubble is distracted by the moralinist drama and other matters, the Thargoids could be planning their next assault on our home systems. Portable Plasma Pilots Federation commanders have long viewed plasma accelerators as one of the most formidable weapons in their arsenal, and one requiring particular skill to use. Manticore Munitions have now announced that they're bringing that potency to a range of personal weapons. So, what'll they be like? Plasma is the fourth form of matter, perhaps the most abundant in the universe. Though it's less visible in daily life to most people than the more prosaic forms of solid, liquid and gas. It is formed by ionising a gas and as any combat pilot will tell you, when you subject it to strong electromagnetic fields and throw gobs of it at a target, it becomes particularly lethal. Plasma accelerators are currently available as ship-mounted weapons for size 2, 3 and 4 hardpoints. 
The weapons come in fixed only variants and tend to have a slow shot speed and long cooldowns between shots. One reason they are beloved by mercenaries and pirates is that the damage they deal is absolute. It can be negated by resistances in the target's hull or shield, making them particularly deadly to all ships. Another is that somewhat unusually for ship-mounted weapons, they are similarly effective against shields and hull armour, rather than being particularly potent against one or the other. Manticore's new range is being sold on this advantage. Combat in 3307, whether on a planet's surface or in the depths of space, tend to revolve around bringing the right weapon for what you're up against. Kinetic weapons like multi-cannons and cannons are more effective against ship hulls but less effective against shields. Laser weapons are much more effective against shields than hulls or indeed body armour in the case of personal combat. So there's an opening in the market for a suite of weapons which does it all, that are equally effective against shields and armour. The downsides of plasma weapons have always been that shot speeds are slow, and reload times are long, meaning that shots are relatively hard to land and require skill to use properly. It's unclear whether Manticore have managed to overcome these issues for their small arms range. We know that the shot speed for plasma weapons will be slower than most small arms, but it's not yet clear how much slower. Their marketers emphasise that they will continue to balance and polish the performance of these weapons so that the values discussed further on in this article are all subject to change. Manticore Munitions are primarily a weapons manufacturer, but have branched out over the 317 years they've been around, and now sell products affecting nearly all aspects of life in space. They have long nurtured a reputation of smart leadership. Established in 2990, they are based at Batani Dock in the Kriegreath system and the outpost is fully owned and run by Manticore. They are historically an empire-incorporated outfit, though they have a network of suppliers throughout civilised space and their products are ubiquitous. They market a tactical suit of the same name, which has become popular amongst fire teams for its ability to field two primary weapons. They make and sell a venerable size 2 multi-cannon, beloved of combat pilots everywhere. And perhaps, surprisingly, they're also the company behind the everyday limpet that underpin mining and salvage galaxy-wide. The new range of personal weapons includes a pistol, a assault rifle, a shotgun and a sniper rifle. Conversations with Manticore sales and marketing suggest that the main opening they see in the market is for a multi-purpose, generalist suite of weapons, which can be used by small fire teams and lone operatives who don't have the ability to field specialists. A larger squad might include a dedicated laser shooter to take down target shields and a kinetic shooter to deal with armoured foes. The Manticore range is designed to be able to do both. Each weapon in the range is dark and angular and clearly epitomises Manticore's distinctive design language. The Manticore pistol is a semi-automatic sidearm that can be carried alongside a larger primary weapon. If also you invest in the Manticore tactical combat suit, as their salespeople are keen to point out, then it may be carried alongside two primary weapons. Its per shot damage is 7.5, pretty powerful when you compare it to the Manticore Assault Rifle's 1.35. With engineering, its damage output can be increased to 20.85, making for a respectable stopping power in a pistol. The downside for this is that the weapon has a quite forceful recoil. 
it has an effective range of 15 metres, which is only twice as far as the Manticore shotgun, but with good accuracy. Able to fire 2.5 rounds per second with its clip size of 6. The pistol looks to be versatile and powerful sidearm. The Manticore assault rifle by contrast has a much lower per shot damage of 1.35 but is able to fire 6.67 rounds per second or 400 rounds per minute. With grade 5 engineering, owners can expect to be able to coax that damage up to around 3.75 per shot. It has a clip size of 30 and a range of 35 meters making it a solid medium distance weapon. It's less accurate than the Manticore pistol, its accuracy being described by insiders as average. But it has a reasonable stability and handling. These features taken together, along with the plasma's intrinsic ability to deal damage to shields and armour equally, mean that the Manticore assault rifle is likely to quickly become a favourite all-rounder for those seeking one versatile weapon to take into the field. The Manticore shotgun is a much more specialised beast. It's thuggish and angular. In fact, your correspondent was reminded of the hexagonal facets of Manticore's limpets when he saw it. It has two side-by-side -side barrels reminiscent of the vintage sporting weapons. It's a primary weapon taking up a primary weapon slot designed for blowing away threats at close range. The shotgun has a capacity for only two shells between reloads, but those shells each contain 10 plasma pellets. The pellets fire in a spread which increases with range, the maximum effective range being only 7 meters. The damage per pellet is only 1.75, but if you manage to land all 10 pellets in the per shell spread, that's an impressive damage of 17.5. Obviously this is harder to do the further away from your target you are. The pellet spread is likely to be pretty dispersed at ranges beyond a few meters. With engineering, the per pellet damage can be increased to a maximum of 4.87, meaning that close range shot from a grade 5 engineered Manticore shotgun would deliver a formidable 48.7 points of damage. The weapon has a fire speed of 1.25 rounds per second, but obviously with a weapon like this, the aim is to make each shot count as with many shotguns, is pretty inaccurate and has a punchy recoil. That may take some getting used to. However, it's not a bulky weapon. It doesn't encumber the shooter much, meaning you can move more quickly with it. It is quick to draw and aim. This weapon seems to primarily have been designed for clearing interiors quickly. It's perfect for emptying a corridor regardless of whether your target is heavily shielded or armoured. The Manticore sniper rifle is perhaps even more specialised. The weapon itself is all menacing black barrel. It is a bulky primary weapon designed around committing to each well-placed shot. It's slow to draw and aim, has a powerful recoil, slows you down when you're moving with it, and the clip only holds three rounds. However, the per shot damage of one of these plasma slugs is a mighty 15, double that of the fierce Manticore pistol. Its effective range is 100 meters. What's more, it's highly accurate at range, and with engineering, the damage per shot can be increased even further. In fact, when engineering to grade 5, Manticore executives say that the per shot damage could be pushed to 41.7. Not much less powerful than a short range blast from a fully engineered Manticore shotgun. With a fire rate of 0.83 rounds per second, 
This is a weapon for a dedicated marksman, able to carefully establish a firing position, aim at leisure, pick targets carefully and commit to each shot. That said, with impressive damage being equally devastating to both shields and armour, this could be the only sniper rifle you'll ever need. Manticore emphasises that their testing phase for these weapons is ongoing. The values may change as they tinker with this component or that, and we advise readers to take the figures above as indicative only. However, it's probably safe to comment on the likely impact of these weapons once they hit the market. The problem for a lone operative in today's theatres of war is, as always, what am I likely to be up against? Heavily shielded targets or hull tanks? This is as true on the ground as it is in the skies, and a major consideration for anyone making outfitting choices. The challenge of scaling down plasma acceleration technology like this is that weapons aren't able to deliver the same raw damage to either shields or hull as the more specialised weapons are. A Manticore Plasma Assault Rifle won't be as effective against shields, for example, as a dedicated laser weapon. But Manticore's bet is the ability to field all-purpose capability in a single weapon is a powerful draw, and we think they're probably right. Many things are unclear at present. Will the damage from plasma weapons ignore shields and armour resistances in the same way that ship-mounted plasma accelerators do? How slow will the shot speed be for these weapons? That's potentially a large concern on planetary battlegrounds, where gravity is a factor. Where will Manticore set their prices for this new range? However, there is a good chance that despite these questions, Manticore's range of personal plasma weapons will be a big hit. A big hit, that is, of ionised gas. The Trial of Admiral Vincent, the Conspiracy that rocked the Federation. On the 26th of May 3301, Starship One, a narwhal liner custom-built for the purpose of transporting the President of the Federation, disappeared after making a jump to the Azaleach system during an outreach tour of Federation systems. It was carrying President Jasmina Halsey, Vice President Ethan Naylor, and other senior members of her administration. The trial of Fleet Admiral Lucas Vincent, the mastermind of the disappearance, ended just a month ago. The first sign that something was wrong was when Maisie Stevenson, leader of the Saga Republic Party, reported that President Halsey was 38 hours late to their scheduled meeting. Federal officers on Mars originally stated that the delay was caused by an unscheduled detour in the Azaleach system. However, the then Secretary of State Felicia Winters disagreed. Approximately 12 hours after the disappearance of Starship One, Winters became acting President of the Federation. Her first act was to declare the vessel officially missing and order the Federal Navy to deploy squadrons in search of the missing President. They initially believed that Starship One and its fighter escort were lost. However, all three ships of the President's Guardian Wing were found the next day. One member of the escort gave the following report. We engaged Navlock on Starship One for the jump to Azaleach, per protocol. However, the jump failed. After a few seconds in hyperspace, we were jerked back into normal space. We re-established contact with each other, then patrolled the area in search of Starship One. After failing to locate Starship One, we jumped to Azaleach. When Starship One was not there either, we contacted Federal Navy Headquarters. Teams from both Core Dynamics and the Sirius Corporation determined via wake analysis and uplink data that Starship One had experienced critical frameshift drive failure mid-jump, dropping the Guardian Wing out of hyperspace and destroying Starship One. The official report delivered by the Federal Navy on June the 2nd attributed the disaster to a mechanical failure. No foul play was initially suspected, but there were several anomalies. 
According to Guardian Wing Alpha, sensor data revealed that an energy surge in the central power plant overloaded all core systems. While this is not particularly strange on its own, every frameshift drive has automatic shutdown systems designed to stop this sort of error. For unknown reasons, these systems failed to engage, causing the destruction of the ship. Newly appointed President Zachary Hudson decided to launch a second surge for the wreckage of Starship One in early 3302. This time, it was successful. Those who analyzed the wreckage concluded that the destruction of the ship was not instantaneous, but began at the rear of the ship. This meant that it was possible that some passengers and crew members towards the front of the ship could have had enough time to get to escape pods. On the 26th of February 3302, survivors were found in some of the thousands of recovered escape pods, including President Halsey. After her revival, she recounted the disaster. She said, I was on the bridge of Starship One when we felt a massive explosion at the back of the ship. I was knocked out after I hit my head on one of the control panels. Luckily, my guards were able to carry me to the escape pods and we made it out. Unfortunately, most of her senior officials, including Vice President Ethan Naylor, have since been confirmed dead. In 3305, a third investigation was started by the Federal Attorney's Office. This investigation found definitive evidence of sabotage before the start of Starship One's tour of Frontier Systems. They also found a suspect. On the 18th of September 3306, Chief Technician Rory Webster was arrested by the Federal Intelligence Agency on charges of mass murder and treason. According to the prosecution, Webster ordered unauthorized modifications to Starship One's frameshift drive. Although during the first investigation Webster managed to convince the investigators that the modifications were routine, one of the engineers realized that the installed regulators could have been modified a second time. After they pointed this out, a second investigation was opened. On the 5th of October, right before the trial ended, Rory Webster offered to confess and reveal who ordered him to sabotage Starship One on the condition that he not be sentenced to death. The court agreed, and Webster alleged that the mastermind of the attack was Fleet Admiral Lucas Vincent, who was arrested on the 9th of October on charges of conspiracy to commit murder and treason. Rory Webster was then sentenced to 20 years in prison, and Lucas Vincent was placed in a secure facility. Although Admiral Vincent was not a suspect before Rory Webster's testimony, there was some circumstantial evidence implicating him. He was never a friend of President Halsey, and disagreed with many of her policies, especially her military engagements in certain systems. Vincent's arrest caused a huge disturbance in the political climate as well when it was revealed that he was a close friend of President Hudson, who had been very popular up until the arrest. Admiral Vincent and President Halsey have always been adversaries ever since the beginning of her presidency. Their first major conflict was during the Onionhead Wars, which broke out after President Halsey banned the narcotic Onionhead, fearing its impact on the Federation's youth. After Onionhead was banned in the Federation, and after launching campaigns to purchase Onionhead and then destroy it, Admiral Vincent had decided to launch a military offensive against Panem, the major onionhead producer in the Kappa Fornassus system that refused to stop production. Although at that time Vincent claimed that no humans were harmed in the strategic bombing, an entire family was later found dead. When confronted by a crowd shouting, Onion Gate and Baby Killer at the Christmas Eve banquet of 3300, President Halsey gave this statement. I have heard about the terrible events on Pan Am. I did not issue any orders to crack down on the narcotic onion head, and I certainly did not authorise bombings of the surface. Admiral Vincent has operated without my authority, and I have asked for an inquiry to see how this happened. Many political reporters and researchers believe that Admiral Vincent and President Halsey secretly detested each other. This is evinced by the placing of blame on each other whenever there was a problem. Admiral Vincent's close friendship with Zachary Hudson left no doubt in anyone's mind that he would have preferred the conservative hawk Hudson in charge, rather than the Liberal Party leader and pacifist Halsey. After being brought out of a coma in 3302, former President Halsey alarmed friends and family with the description of her experiences after the destruction of Starship One. It was wonderful. 
amazing. I saw the universe and our galaxy within it, as I'd never seen it before, and I felt the presence of the real caretakers of our galaxy, the paradox of their existence, tiny yet gargantuan, fleeting yet eternal. They spoke to me as I drifted in the void. It was amazing. I must share their message. She then issued a request to explorers to find proof of her claims of meeting the true architects of creation and being shown the infinities of the cosmos. Although the resulting exploration data led to the discovery of the extinct alien race now known as the Guardians, it is unknown whether those were the superintelligent species that she claimed spoke to her. At first, she argued passionately that she had indeed seen what she described. They're picking my story to pieces. Some of the criticism is rational. The lack of corroborative evidence, for example. I don't mind that. I'm telling the truth after all, and a rational approach can't hurt the truth. But when they say that what I experience is an archetypal conversion story, and that makes it suspect. If what I saw reminds people of historical accounts, doesn't that say something about those experiences? She has now recanted her statements. During the trial of Fleet Admiral Lucas Vincent, she was questioned about her visions, and the defence argued in cross-examination that the testimony of someone with such obvious delusions should be discounted. But Halsey revealed that she no longer has any memory of making those statements, attributing them to post-traumatic shock. She then presented psychological reports and neural scans by Alliance doctors, medically demonstrating that she is of sound mind. The trial of Fleet Admiral Lucas Vincent began on the 25th of January 3307. The prosecution began by giving an outline of the case along with their main evidence, Rory Webster's testimony. Fleet Admiral Lucas Vincent was questioned about a secure transmission from his office to Starship One on the 24th of May 3301, ordering an unscheduled diversion to the Azalech system for routine maintenance. This is when Rory Webster's engineering team followed Vincent's orders to unwittingly install the sabotaged hyperdrive component that caused the misjump. Rather than answer questions put to him, Admiral Vincent instead spouted wild conspiracy theories claiming that the entire trial was a Liberal Party cover-up and that Starship One was destroyed to put Winters in charge. While it is true that Felicia Winters briefly became acting president of the Federation after the disappearance of Starship One, the more significant outcome was that Zachary Hudson became president by a vote in Congress without a general election, a position he still holds. Rather than support Vincent's allegations, his defense counsel focused on the possibility that the recording could have been faked. On the 27th of January 3307, Jasmina Holse provided the first of her two testimonies. She confirmed that it was by Admiral Vincent's orders that Starship One diverted to undergo maintenance in Azalich, and gave an account of the chaos, death and destruction aboard Starship One during its final moments. On the 29th of January 3307, Jasmina Halsey provided her second testimony, giving a potential motive for the sabotage, beyond the antagonism between her and Admiral Vincent. She detailed a classified cabinet meeting in late April 3301, the purpose of which was to address public dissatisfaction with her administration. At the meeting, Halsey explained that she had been inspired by various peace activists to refocus on the well-being of citizens. She planned to reduce taxes, invest in social infrastructure, and slash federal Navy spending. According to Halsey, only about a dozen officials were present, including Admiral Vincent. They were all told that this was confidential, but to expect large budget changes in the coming months. The prosecution asserted that Admiral Vincent was therefore aware that naval defunding, which would reduce his personal power, was imminent. They also claimed that it would impact several individuals he was illegally connected to, evidence of which they would present shortly. Several days later, it was revealed that Admiral Vincent and other prominent members of the Federal Navy received massive payments via shell companies created by Jupiter Rochester's loyalists, known as the Jupiter Division. In response, the Jupiter Division transported large amounts of personnel and equipment to HIP-54530, a permit-locked system. On the 8th of February 3307, 
the Federal High Court found Fleet Admiral Lucas Vincent guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and treason. Immediately after his life sentence was delivered, a multitude of co-conspirators within the Federal Navy and government were arrested. Unfortunately, Jupiter Rochester evaded arrest by fleeing to HIP 54530, announcing his intention of putting the Federation under corporate rule. After a short conflict in the system, he too was captured and jailed. Perhaps with both Lucas Vincent and Jupiter Rochester behind bars, ex-president Jasmina Halsey has finally gotten justice. Uh, but this reporter doesn't think so. There are still so many unanswered questions and things that don't add up. What did Jasmina Halsey really see? And why did she claim to have forgotten? What really happened at Clearwater Clinic? How did President Zachary Hudson have no idea about his friend's plot to put him in power? Keep searching, Commanders, and fly safe. An interview with Eremus Kamsel. We try to avoid lionising individual pilots at Sagittarius I. Most great accomplishments are team efforts, and it's a big galaxy. But some commanders' contributions to the galactic community are so titanic as to be worthy of exception. Eremus Kamzel is one such pilot. The list of foundational, enormously important initiatives and institutions that can trace their origins to Eremus is staggering. He set up the Galactic Mapping Project, Fleetcom, and the Colonia Citizens Network, and ran the Children of Raxler. He instigated the Distant Worlds expeditions. He named Beagle Point and Colonia. But speaking to Eremus, you'd be forgiven for mistaking him for a background actor. He's refreshingly without ego, and speaks of his starfaring career as if it had all sort of happened to him. It all kind of links up, which is really weird, as it's like it's been one long continuous story I've been on, where one thing has directly led to something else, he told us. He rarely seeks personal recognition for his work, preferring to defer the glory onto the projects themselves and his collaborators. Whilst undeniably a well-known name in the Pilots' Federation, he does far less to draw attention to himself than many. We thought it was about time more pilots knew the commander behind all these well-known institutions. Hey Eremus, welcome to Sagittarius I. What was your first community initiative in the Pilots' Federation? The first major project I was involved in was the founding of the Galactic Mapping Project way back in February 3301. This was born out of the Distant Suns expedition, which occurred a month earlier, December 3300 to January 3301, the one where I vidlogged my journey across the galaxy and discovered the system that later became known as Beagle Point. The exploration community took a keen interest in that journey, and I remember getting quite a few requests to publish any maps of the route I'd made during the trip so that others could go visit some of the interesting locations the Distant Suns expedition had highlighted. This became the inspiration behind the mapping project to create a community project whereby fellow explorers could help chart the galaxy, share and name their own discoveries, and gradually build up a kind of traveller's almanac. Let's talk about distant suns a bit. Was that your first major journey? That was the first one I made public. A month earlier, I'd taken my starter ship, a Cobra Mark III, along the Orion Spur to the Ita Carina Nebula. I did that in the Gamma era of the Pilots' Federation and used the credits earned to buy an ASP Explorer. Once I had the ASP, I set my sights on seeing what it could do, how far it could go. That journey became Distant Suns. I wanted to record the journey to video, as I had a feeling it would either be the very first or one of the very first attempts to cross the Milky Way, and something to look back on in years to come. It was surprisingly easy to make the video logs. They're nothing fancy, not like the ones people create today, but they worked well for what they're intended to do. People still comment about these vidlogs and the journey they recorded to this day. Following this, circa April 3301, I was invited to join a newly established group called the Children of Raxler as the group were actively investigating the mysteries of the Formidine Rift at the time and were interested in the maps I was producing. 
The mapping project had charted parts of that mysterious region. I'd been out there previously during the Deedless mission and charted some routes across the rift. The children of Raxler approached me to produce maps and routes for them to utilise in their investigations. This was before the Engineering and Jumponium era, so finding routes across inter-arm regions was a test in navigation and endurance as maximum ship ranges back there barely got above 34 light-years. How did the children of Raxler begin? The organisation was born out of a discussion thread surrounding the Formidine Rift mystery and the enigmatic Commander Salome, and what she was looking for out there. Commander Thorne founded the group, and it was made up of early rifters, commanders who had ventured out to that mysterious region or were planning to. What came next? Towards the end of 3301, the announcement of the new planetary landing suite technology, also known as Horizons, became the inspiration to retrace the Distant Suns expedition, and I planned to organise another galactic crossing event. This time, we'd have the ability to land on and explore the worlds I'd previously only been able to view from orbit. This expedition was to be named Distant Worlds. In late October 3301, Dr Kai heard I was planning another trip across the galaxy, and he asked me if he could come along too. I then mentioned on the Pilots' Federation forums that we both intended to cross the galaxy together once Horizons was released and I received a few messages from other commanders asking if they could tag along too. Following this, on the 7th of November 3301, I published an expedition outline with the intended route and itinerary I'd originally intended to take and followed it up with an expedition sign-up post to gauge how many would be coming along. At first we thought maybe a dozen at most would join on the journey, but within a couple of weeks over a hundred other players had expressed an interest. By the time we set off in early January 3302, over a thousand players had signed up. That's how Distant Worlds 1 came about, and eventually a whole team of avid explorers came on board to help out with the logistics and administration of getting a thousand ship fleet across the galaxy. That initial team included some well-known commanders, Dr Kai, Cancro Vantas, Corbin Moran, Neotron, Grinberg, Wishblend, Wolverine, Katagina, and Akira Makasari. For Distant Worlds to work, we needed a communications network for all fleet members to use during that journey, and with the help of Commander Neotron, who set up the initial server, Fleetcom was born. This has since become one of the most popular comms networks that explorers use to this day, with over 12,000 members. Distant Worlds was the catalyst of so many peripheral episodes that followed. At the Distant Worlds 1 finale event at Beagle Point in April 3302, the enigmatic Commander Salome, who'd taken part in the journey with the fleet, made a public appearance and gave a speech at a place named Sanctuary Hill, about 30 kilometres from the final Distant Worlds base camp at Beagle Point. The speech re-inspired the children of Raxler, who had been dormant for around six months, the last few active remnants of which had journeyed with Distant Worlds. Thus, in the wake of Distant Worlds, I gathered the last few members of Children of Raxler together, and was approached by Senator Drew Wagar to lead the Children of Raxler into the premonition era that was to follow. At the same time, Jacques, the cyborg owner of the Wandering Starport, had been inspired to make a hyperjump to Beagle Point and rendezvous with the Distant Worlds fleet there, but as history shows, the Starport misjumped and ended up in the Eel Prow Nebula in the western core region, some 40,000 light-years short of his intended destination. Ah yes, Colonia. How were you involved in that? After the Starport was rediscovered by the intrepid Commander Cly, a community effort was instigated by Olivia Vespera to travel out to the nebula and get Jacques back online. This directly led to my setting up the comms network known as Colonia Citizens Network. With co-founders Souverine, Cohen Leth and Unrealization, we strove to help lay the initial foundations for humanity's first deep space colony. The inspiration here tied directly into how the Fleetcom's comms network had worked during Distant Worlds 1, creating a platform for many commanders to come together and work as one to achieve a set goal. I left Colonia and the CCN after about six months of being a custodian there, as by then the premonition era was underway and I'd been asked by Senator Wegar to help prepare the children of Raxler for a major event back in bubble space. 
This event was Salome's attempt to expose the dynasty conspiracy, an effort that ultimately cost her her life. I was one of the organisers of the event, children of Raxler's representative on the organisation team Senator Wager had put together. We always thought this might become an event that the whole climax of a history book could hinge on, and it did. After the premonition era was over, I felt it was time to get back to my exploration roots and I began writing the first draft proposal for a new large-scale expedition, Distant Worlds 2. What prompted you to start planning Distant Worlds 2? The inspiration for Distant Worlds 2 came from a meeting with several veterans of the first expedition, in 3303. When I realised there was a burning desire to go again, I wanted Distant Worlds 2 to build upon the first expedition's legacy and incorporate more than just a sightseeing tour, like the first one had been. That's where the idea of building a science array or space station at the galactic core came from. I realised that if Distant Worlds 2 was able to assemble another fleet a thousand ships strong, we'd have the manpower to pull it off. In January 3304, I wrote a proposal for the expedition and shared it with the people who had been part of organising Distant Worlds 1 with me. In February 3304, along with Cohen Leth, we opened a roster sign-up application to gauge how many commanders would be coming along. Within a month, over 2,000 had signed up, and that's when we realised there was a potential to build a science array near Sagittarius A-star. The proposal was pitched to the Pilots' Federation, who gave us the green light. By the time Distant Worlds 2 launched in January 3305, almost 14,000 commanders had signed up. This was the largest fleet of commanders ever assembled. And it went on to not only build the Explorer's Anchorage starport near Sagittarius A-star, but also a science array in the same system, as well as the Distant Worlds science megaship. That megaship periodically circumnavigates the central galactic core to this day, gathering scientific data from specific points of interest along the way. What have you been doing since then? In the summer of 3306, I helped get the DSSA initiative off the ground, which was the brainchild of Cohen Leth. Since then, I've taken a back seat, but earlier in 3306, I began putting the Distant Worlds organisation team back together, and we've been ironing out another in-depth proposal for Distant Worlds 3. This, we hope, will be the most in-depth and ambitious expedition ever attempted, and there have been discussions with Senator Wegar to incorporate a whole narrative during the journey. Out of all the projects you've been involved with or instigated, which one are you the most proud of? It's got to be the Galactic Mapping Project, as that was the inspiration for everything that followed, like the Distant Worlds expeditions. I'm also proud that it's the oldest community project in the Pilots' Federation still going strong after six years. It's also the one that I think explorers have enjoyed the most. It's been really popular in the community. Some of its entries have also been adopted by the Pilots' Federation too, which is awesome. Are there any projects you've been involved with that didn't develop as you'd hoped? The only one was CCN. But for what it was, it worked brilliantly in that first year or so. It was a fountain of activity, creativity and cooperation. It's a shame that external forces, specifically the Pilots' Federation, wanted Colonia to become a clone of the bubble and steered it down that route. It made the early concepts that CCN was striving to achieve obsolete. I have mixed feelings. On one hand, I was really happy to be part of that project while Colonia was a Wild West environment and to see the birth of the colony. On the other hand, I'm a touch disappointed that it evolved into something completely different, but I understand that plenty of commanders prefer and enjoy the way it went and what it's become. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. Where do you spend most of your time in space? I live at Beagle Point, aboard the DSSA Distant Worlds carrier that's permanently stationed there. Is there any project you've been involved with that you feel has been overlooked in terms of its impact and significance? The only one that hasn't received the attention I think it deserved was the mapping project. By that, I mean from the Pilots' Federation, not the community as a whole, as they've embraced it from day one. But the Pilots' Federation, well, they never really took to it, although some entries have been taken from there and added to the official galactic map, if those entries have made it into the press and general community lexicon, that is. I do understand why it's not really spoken about by the Pilots' Federation as we're unofficially naming systems and worlds that have only procedural designations and some people paid the Pilots' Federation a lot of money to do that officially. I guess the Pilots' Federation has to tread carefully with that sort of thing. 
And as I mentioned before, it's awesome that they've at least taken a few entries from the GMP and put them on the map. We're actually closing the GMP for a couple of months soon in readiness for the Odyssey era. A lot of the older Horizons entries will be archived during the next cleanup, as the bar is about to be raised with the new vistas and locations Odyssey is bringing access to. So what are your plans for Distant Worlds 3? We have a really in-depth proposal already written up and have shared it with the Pilots' Federation. It's 65 pages long, so you can imagine what's packed into it. The consensus in the team, though, is that we want to launch it to coincide with a technology update that has more of an exploration purpose, which the first release of Odyssey Tech doesn't seem to have, as it's primarily combat by the looks of it. So yes, Distant Worlds 3 will likely be announced sometime during the Odyssey era, but only when the Pilots' Federation have revealed any plans they have to enable further exploration, specifically planetside exploration on the newly accessible worlds. Thank you very much for your time. Stations you haven't visited. Bering Port. It takes a hardy sort to colonise the edge of space, but when that edge of space is a Thargoid-infested expanse, an altogether different sort is required. The Coltac Nebula is one such locale. Teeming with Thargoids, and more recently humans, conflict is a fact of life. Still, even in areas of conflict and chaos can sanctuaries be found. Bearingport is one such place. A massive Acellus-class station, Bearingport is located in the coal sack, sector KN-SB4-9. It is a foreboding place where only the bravest venture. And Bearingport is often their destination. Like everything else in the coal sack nebula, Bearingport is owned by the Alliance, more specifically, the Allied Commission. It is one of three original stations, the other two being Coal Point and Hanu Arena. As a station, Bearingport is unremarkable. A marvel of engineering, but not an uncommon one for the seasoned pilot. It is its location and history that have elevated it to significance, and its potential as a hotly contested asset. The story of Bearingport cannot be told without telling the story of humanity's involvement in the Coal Sack Nebula. First contact occurred in October the 13th of 3111, when a survey team hired by Azimuth Biochemicals happened upon the nebula. Their leader, a researcher named Penelope Carver, set up a base camp and encountered not only barnacles, but a crashed Thargoid interceptor. One of the earliest recorded sightings of such an object. Realizing the significance of such a find, Azimuth diverted the megaship Adamastor to transport the xenological samples back to settled human space. Unfortunately for all involved, the base was attacked by what were most certainly Thargoids. The Adamastor II was doomed to fail in its mission, suffering critical damage due to the then-unknown caustic nature of Thargoid components. It was forced to return home at sublight speeds, not arriving until 3306. By that time, the Thargoids were no longer a myth. Open hostilities between them and humanity had commenced, though not on the grand scale originally feared by many. An analysis of the ship's logs led to the rediscovery of the Colsac Nebula, long inhabited by Thargoids and rich in meta-alloys. An expedition to appropriate and colonize was launched by the Alliance, enjoying the support of both Sirius Atmospherics and the galactic community of independent pilots. This initiative proved costly, but successful, with scores of Thargoids defeated and a foothold established. The second phase of the expedition opened the door to terraforming certain ammonia-based worlds prized by the Thargoids. This was a controversial move as many saw it to be an unnecessary provocation of this already hostile species. The situation since has been largely something of a low-level war. Humanity has brought significant firepower to bear, yet there seems to be no end of Thargoid numbers. Numerous fleet carriers owned by independent commanders of the Pilots' Federation are seen throughout, and Bearingport itself bustles with activity. 
the Alliance Defense Force itself is absent in significant numbers. Its deployment is impossible due to the distance and cost involved, and it has largely outsourced the task of security to private entities. It isn't uncommon for a ship of martial bearing to fly in its hull corroded with caustic damage, crews and safety gear working feverishly to scrape the dangerous substance off its hull. Combat is a fact of life in the Colsac Nebula, as is the reality of taking one's life in one's hands when leaving the safety of Bering Port. Still, even a place like Bering Port isn't free of political troubles and criminality. A new faction has set up shop, the only non-alliance entity in the Nebula. The Protectors are a collection of hard-scrabbled frontier rangers, dedicated to enforcing order and upholding the law. They are a tiny group and remain on the fringes of local politics, but persist in asserting themselves. No outward clashes between them and the ruling Allied Commission have been reported, but violent crimes from outside actors has. There's been a significant uptick in human-on-human -human violence in recent weeks, causing economic and morale difficulties for local authorities. At the time of writing, the violence isn't directly traceable to the protectors. But they've not hesitated to make the case for themselves as the system's rightful stewards. This correspondent was able to make inroads as far as contacting the protectors. Grior Vorstotter is an earnest woman with graying temples and a permanent scowl. Her office is a modest affair, hollow screens from a dozen protectors playing in real time. The creak of an old-style leather jacket accompanies her words. My name is Grider Vorstatter, and I've had the privilege of leading my clan, the Protectors, for the past two years. We were around 76,000 strong. We moved into Baringport roughly three months ago, and have only recently begun to establish ourselves as a political power out of sheer necessity. As an independent warrior cooperative, we believe in the sanctity of the clan and holding a right to self-determination. Despite our best efforts, the Alliance has given us nothing but grief. We are mired in the clutches of Alliance corporations, and in-system corruption and greed is at record levels despite the near-constant threat from the Thargoids. The Protectors cannot and will not live under such tyranny, and neither will the other system inhabitants. The Allied Commission and Associated Alliance Vanguard crew will not oppress the good people of this star system any longer, not without a fight. If you believe in freedom, we beseech all those receiving this statement to spread the word and aid the protectors for the good of all inhabited Colsac systems. Nor is political trouble the only setback to which Bering Port has borne witness. The terraforming process, so vaunted by serious atmospherics, was revealed to be less effective than projected. Progress is slow, and it will be some time before the ammonia worlds in question are even semi-habitable by humanity. Furthermore, there is turmoil involving Sirius itself, which also has a stake in the Colsac Nebula. The corporation sent a large contingent of personnel after initial colonization, but has pulled out of both Bering Port and the system proper. It is unknown if this is a strategic redeployment of resources, a tacit admission of failure, or something else entirely. It has been speculated that the terraforming operation itself is merely a cover for another more clandestine agenda. One that cannot be publicly disclosed, but that is unfolding in Thargoid space. This correspondent will not indulge in baseless conspiracy theories, but it would be remiss to neglect mentioning that Sirius Corporation is neither accustomed to outright failure, nor easily dissuaded from pursuing its designs. Standing in the observation gallery in Bering Port's cavernous docking tube, one might think that the tranquil stars beyond are a sign of peace. One would be mistaken. Bering Port is on the front lines of a forgotten war, one that has waged in some form or another for centuries, against a foe with memories that stretch into millennia. Challenges old and new lurk around every corner, each venture from the safety of her bulkheads one of danger and opportunity. And indeed, in a place like Bering Port, one cannot be had without the other. What I Fly, Commander Gambit. 
What I Fly is a new, semi-regular feature in which we invite commanders to share their love for ships with us. From quirky variants of classic hulls to hyper-specialised builds, we delve into the amazing things pilots have done with their vessels. This month, Commander Gambit kicks us off. Hey Commander, thanks for joining us. What do you fly? Oh seven Sagittarius I, it's a pleasure to be here. I fly a handful of ships. The most, a Cutter, Python, Type 9, Diamondback and recently a Crate Mark II. Which of your ships is the favourite and why? My Diamondback Explorer is the first ship I engineered and the one I've explored in the most. I love its design, and being a small ship, it's super practical for landing planetside, with an impressive jump range. What's the most creative ship build you have? Almost all of my builds are close to or inspired by the meta, but I've had the chance to try out some more niche ones on stream. A Type 9, built to be lightweight and fast for canyon racing with Commander Escorbius, isn't something you see every day. Do you prefer specialised builds or generalists? The gamer in me loves to see what the optimal builds are for each activity. That said, if I end up going on a long expedition, I want something like an anaconda that's outfitted for a little bit of everything. Is there a hull that you think is underrated by pilots? I think the Mamba can easily be overlooked by the FDL crowd. But after trying a frag build shared by Commander Platter and Stream, I'm sold. It's fast and looks fantastic. Is there a ship project you have your sights on next or are currently working on? Is there an upgrade to what you're currently flying or a new hull that you're eyeing up? That anaconda I mentioned is something I'm yet to build. So perhaps that'll be next. Bah! So many things I want to bring and so few hard points in module space. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to issue 35 of Sagittarius I. This issue featured articles written by Mac Winston, Rendak Sorrow, Souverine, M. Lehman and Ariri, and was edited by Adernis, Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank, Mac Winston and Souverine. This audio edition featured the voices of Orange Phoenix, Rini, Catisfaction, Kaizen, Commander Burr, Scott Cleverton, Aidlevice, Beetlejude, Souverine, Wotherspoon, Professor Getter and Catisfaction and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Development's PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius I.